She no doubt pulled back my noble friend's hand when it was on the office bell, but like faithful in the text, he shook him out of his company and went in. I spoke of the remarkable justice of the newspaper press in the opening of these remarks, and it so happens that as I lay down my pen to rest my hand after writing this sentence and lift a London evening paper, I read this editorial note set within the well-known brackets at the end of an indignant and expostulatory letter. Our correspondent's complaint is just. The paragraph imputing bad motives should not have been admitted. End of quote. I have no doubt that editor felt some shame as he handed that apologetic note to the printer. But not to speak of any other recognition and recompense, he has the recompense of the recognition of all honorable-minded men who have read that honorable admission and apology. Shame was quite right in his scoff about restitution also, for restitution rings like a trumpet tone through the whole of the law of Moses, and then the New Testament republishes that law, if only in the exquisite story of Zacchaeus. And indeed, take it all together, I do not know where to find in the same space a finer vindication of Puritan pulpit ethics than just in this taunting and terrifying attack on faithful. There is no better test of true religion, both as it is preached and practiced, than just to ask for and to grant forgiveness, and to offer and accept restitution. Now does your public and private life defend and adore your minister's pulpit in these two so practical matters? Could your minister point to you as a proof of the ethics of evangelical teaching? Can anyone in this city speak up in defense of your church and thus protest? Say what you like about that church and its ministers. All I can say is that its members know how to make an apology, as also how to pay back with interest what they at one time damaged or defrauded. Can any old creditor's widow or orphan stand up for our doctrine and defend our discipline pointing to you? If you go on to be a Puritan, said shame to faithful, you will have to ask your neighbor's forgiveness, even for petty faults, and you will have to make restitution with usury when you have taken anything from anyone, and how will you like that? And what did you say to all this, my brother? Say, I could not tell what to say at the first. I felt my blood coming up into my face at some of the things that shame said and threatened. But at last I began to consider that that which is highly esteemed among men is often had in abomination with God. And I said to myself again, Shame tells me what men do and what men think. But he has told me nothing about what he thinks with whom I shall soon have alone to do. Therefore thought I, what God thinks and says is wisest and best. Let all the men of the world say what they will. Let all false shame then depart from my heart for how else shall I look upon my Lord, and how shall he look upon me at his coming? Chapter 18, page 180 Talkative A man full of talk A quote from Zophar Let thy words be few From the preacher The soul of religion is the practical part From Christian Since we all have a tongue, and since so much of our time is taken up with talk, a simple catalogue of the sins of the tongue is enough to terrify us. The sins of the tongue take up a much larger space in the Bible than we would believe till we have begun to suffer from other men's tongues and especially from our own. The Bible speaks a great deal more and a great deal plainer about the sins of the tongue 
than any of our pulpits dare do. In the Psalms alone, you would think that the psalmists scarcely suffer from anything else we're speaking about but the evil tongues of their friends and of their enemies. The book of Proverbs also is full of the same lashing scourge, and James the Just, in a passage of terrible truth and power, tells us that we are already as good as perfect men if we can bridle our tongue, and that on the other hand, if we do not bridle our tongue, all our seeming to be religious is a sham and a self-deception. That man's religion is vain. With many men and many women, great talkativeness is a matter of simple temperament and mental constitution. And a talkative habit would be a childlike and an innocent habit if the heart of the talker and the hearts of those to whom he talks so much were only full of truth and love. But our hearts and our neighbor's hearts being what they are, in the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. So much of our talk is about our absent neighbors, and there are so many misunderstandings, prejudices, ambitions, competitions, oppositions, and all kinds of cross-interests between us and our absent neighbors that we cannot long talk about them till our hearts have wrung our tongues into all manner of trespass. Bishop Butler discourses on the great dangers that beset a talkative temperament with almost more than all his usual sagacity, seriousness, and depth. And those who care to see how the greatest of our modern moralists deal with their besetting sin should lose no time in possessing and mastering Butler's great discourse. It is a truly golden discourse, and it ought to be read at least once a month by all the men and all the women who have tongues in their heads. Bishop Butler points out to his offending readers, in a way they can never forget, the certain mischief they do to themselves and to other people just by talking too much. But there are far worse sins that our tongues fall into than the bad enough sins that spring out of the impertinent and unrestrained loquacity. There are many times when our talk, long or short, is already simple and downright evil. It is ten to one. It is a hundred to one that you do not know and would not believe how much you fall every day and in every conversation into one or other of the sins of the tongue. If you would only begin to see and accept this, that every time you speak or hear about your present neighbor, what you would not like him to speak or hear about you, you are in that a tale-bearer, a slanderer, a backbiter, or a liar. When you begin to see and admit that about yourself, you will not wonder at what the Bible says with such bitter indignation about the diabolical sins of the tongue. If you would just begin tonight to watch yourselves on the way home from church, at home after the day is over, tomorrow morning when the letters and papers are opened and so on, how instinctively, incessantly, irrepressibly you speak about the absent in a way you would be astounded and horrified to be told they were at that moment speaking about you then you would soon be wiser than all your teachers in the sins and in the government of your tongue. And you would seven times every day pluck out your tongue before God till he gives it back to you clean and kind in that land where all men shall love their neighbors, present and absent, as themselves. Take detraction for an example, one of the commonest and surely one of the most detestable of the sins of the tongue. And the etymology here, as in this whole region, is most instructive and most impressive. In detraction, you draw away something from your neighbor that is most precious and most dear to him. In detraction, you are a thief, 
and a thief of the falsest and wickedest kind. For your neighbor's purse is trash, while his good name is far more precious to him than all his gold. Someone praises your neighbor in your hearing, his talents, his performances, his character, his motives, or something else that belongs to your neighbor. Someone does that in your hearing who either does not know you or who wishes to torture and expose you, and you fall straight into the snare thus set for you and begin at once to belittle, depreciate, detract from, and run down your neighbor who has been too much praised for your peace of mind and your self-control. You insinuate something to his disadvantage and dishonor. You quote some authority you have heard to his hurt, and so on past all our power to picture you. For detraction has a thousand devices taught to it by the master of all such devices, wherewith to drag down and defile the great and the good. But with all you can say or do, you cannot for many days get out of your mind the heart-poisoning praise you heard spoken of your envied neighbor. Never praise any potter's pots in the hearing of another potter, said the author of the Nicomitian Ethics. Aristotle said potter's pots, but he really all the time was thinking of a philosopher's books. Only he said potter's pots to draw off his reader's attention from himself. Now always remember that ancient and wise advice. Take care how you praise a potter's pots, a philosopher's books, a woman's beauty, a speaker's speech, a preacher's sermon to another potter, philosopher, woman, speaker or preacher. Unless indeed you maliciously wish secretly to torture them or publicly to expose them or if their sanctification is begun to sanctify them to their most inward and spiritual sanctification. Backbiting again would seem at first sight to be a sin of the teeth rather than of the tongue. Only no sharpest tooth can tear you when your back is turned like your neighbor's evil tongue. Pascal has many dreadful things about the corruption and misery of man, but he has nothing that strikes its terrible barb deeper into all our consciences than this, that if all our friends only knew what we have said about them behind their back, we would not have four friends in all the world. Neither we would. I know I would not have one. How many would you have? And who would they be? You cannot name them. I defy you to name them. They do not exist. The tongue can no man tame. Giving of characters also takes up a large part of our everyday conversation. We cannot well help characterizing, describing, and estimating one another. But as far as possible, when we see the conversation again approaching that dangerous subject, we should call to mind our past remorse. We should suppose our absent neighbor present. We should imagine him in our place and ourselves in his place, and so turn the rising talk into another channel. For the truth is, few of us are able to do justice to our neighbor when we begin to discuss and describe him. Generosity in our talk is far easier for us than justice. It was this incessant giving of characters that our Lord had in his eye when he said in his Sermon on the Mount, Judge not. But our Lord might as well never have uttered that warning word for all the attention we give it. For we go on judging one another and sentencing one another as if we were entirely and in all things blameless ourselves and as if God had set us up in our blamelessness in his seat of judgment over all our fellows. How seldom do we hear anyone say in a public debate 
or in a private conversation, I don't know, or it is no matter of mine, or I feel that I am not in possession of all the facts, or it may be so, but I must not judge. We never hear such things as these said. No one pays the least attention to the preacher on the mount. And if anyone says to us, I must not judge, we never forgive him, because his humility and his obedience so condemn all our ill-formed, prejudiced, rash, and ill-natured judgments of our neighbor. Since therefore, so Butler sums up, it is so hard for us to enter on our neighbor's character without offending the law of Christ, we should learn to decline that kind of conversation altogether, and determine to get over that strong inclination most of us have to be continually talking about the concerns, the behavior, and the deserts of our neighbors. How it was all those vices of the tongue in full outbreak in the day of James the just that made that apostle, half in sorrow, half in anger, demand of all his readers that they should henceforth begin to bridle their tongues. And like all that most practical apostles' counsels, that is a most impressive and memorable commandment. For it is well known that all sane men who either ride on or drive unruly horses take good care to bridle their horses well before they bring them out of their stable door. And then they keep their bridle hand firm closed on the bridle rein till their horses are back in the stable again. Especially and particularly they keep a close eye and a firm hand on their horse's bridle on all steep inclines and at all sharp angles and sudden turns in the road when sudden trains are passing and when stray dogs are barking. If the rider or the driver of a horse did not look at nothing else but the bridle of his horse, both he and his horse under him would soon be in the ditch, as so many of us are at the present moment, because we have an untamed tongue in our mouth, on which we have not yet begun to put the bridle of truth and justice and brotherly love. Indeed, such woe and misery has an untamed tongue wrought in other churches, and in other and more serious ages than ours, that special religious brotherhoods have been banded together just on the special and strict engagement that they would, above all things, put a bridle on their tongues. What are the chief cares of a young convert? asked such a convert at an aged Carthusian. I said I will take heed to my ways that I trespass not with my tongue, replied the saintly father. Say no more for the present, interrupted the youthful beginner. I will go home and practice that, and will come again when I have performed it. Now whatever faults that tall man had who took up so much of faithful's time and attention, he was a saint compared with the men and the women who have just passed before us. Talkative, as John Bunyan so scornfully names that tall man, though he undoubtedly takes up too much time and too much space in Bunyan's book, was not a busybody in other men's matters at any rate. Nobody could call him a detractor or a backbiter or a tale-bearer or a liar. Christian knew him well and had known him long, but Christian was not afraid to leave him alone with faithful. We all know men we feel it unsafe to leave alone with our friends. We feel sure that they will be talking about us and that to our hurt as soon as our backs are about. But to give that tall man his due, he was not given with all his talk to tale-bearing or scandal or detraction. Had he been guilty of any of these things, Faithful would soon have found him out and would have left him to go to the celestial city by himself. But after talking for half a day with Talkative, 
Instead of finding out anything wrong in that tall man's talk, Faithful was so taken and so struck with it that he stepped across to Christian and said, What a brave companion we have got. Surely this man will make a most excellent pilgrim. So I once thought too, said Christian, till I went to live beside him and have to do with him in the business of daily life. Yes, it is near neighborhood and the business of everyday life that try a talking man. If you go to a meeting for prayer and hear some men praying and speaking on religious subjects, you would say to yourself, What a good man that is, and how happy must his wife and children and servants and neighbors be with such an example always before them, and with such an intercessor for them always with God. But if you were to go home with that so devotional man and try to do business with him, and were compelled to cross him and go against him, you would find out why Christian smiled so when Faithful was so full of talkative praises. But of all the religiously loquacious men of our day, your ministers are the chief. For your ministers must talk in public, and that often and at great length, whether they are truly religious men at home or no. It is their calling to talk to you unceasingly about religious matters. You choose them to be your ministers because they could talk well. You would not put up with a minister who could not talk well on religious things. You estimate them by their talk. You praise and pay them by their talk. And if they are to live, talk incessantly to you about religion they must, and they do. If any other man among us is not a religious man, well then, he can at least hold his tongue. There is no necessity laid on him to speak in public about things that he does not practice at home. But we hard-besetted ministers must go on speaking continually about the most solemn things. And if we are not extraordinarily watchful over ourselves, and extraordinarily and increasingly conscientious, if we are not steadily growing in inwardness and insight and depth and real spirituality of mind and life ourselves, we cannot escape. Our calling in life will not let us escape, becoming as sounding brass. There is an awful sentence in Butler that should be written in letters of fire in every minister's conscience, to the effect that continually going over religion in talk and making fine pictures of it in the pulpit creates a professional insensibility to personal religion that is the everlasting ruin of multitudes of eloquent ministers. That is true. We ministers all feel that to be true. Our miserable experience tells us that it is only too true of ourselves. What a flood of demoralizing talk has been poured out from the pulpits of this one city today, demoralizing to preachers and to hearers both, because not intended to be put in practice. How few of those who have talked and heard talk all this day about divine truth and human duty have made the least beginning or the least resolve to live as they have spoken and heard. And yet all will, in words again, admit that the soul of religion is the practical part, and that the tongue without the heart and the life is but death and corruption. Let us then this very night begin to do something practical after all this talk about talk, and let us all begin to do something in the direct line of our present talk. What a noble congregation of evangelicals, Carthusians, that would make us if we all put a bridle on our tongue tonight before we left this house. For we all have neighbors, friends, enemies, against whom we every day sin with our unbridled tongue. We all have acquaintances we are ashamed to meet 
we have been so unkind and so unjust to them with our tongue. We hang down our head when they shake our hand. Yes, we know the men quite well of whom Pascal speaks. We know many men who could never speak to us again if they only knew how and how often we have spoken about them behind their back. Well, let us sin against them and against ourselves and against our Master's command and example no more. Let this night and this lecture on Talkative and his kindred be the last of our sin against our ill-used neighbor. Let us promise God and our own consciences tonight that we shall all this week put a bridle about that man and about that subject and in that place and in that company. Let us say, God helping me, I shall for all this week not speak about that man at all, anything either good or bad, nor on that subject, nor will I let the conversation turn into that channel at all if I can help it. And God will surely help us till after weeks and years of such prayer and such practice we shall by slow degrees and after many defeats be able to say with the psalmist I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue I will keep my mouth with a bridle I will be dumb with silence I will hold my peace even from good chapter 19 page 191 judge hate good Hear, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel, who hate the good and love the evil. A quote from Micah. The portrait of Judge Hategood in the Pilgrim's Progress is but a poor replica, as our artists say, of the portrait of Judge Jeffreys in our English history books. I am sure you have often read with astonishment at Bunyan's literary power his wonderful account of the trial of faithful when, as Bunyan says, he was brought forth to his trial in order to his condemnation. We have the whole ecclesiastical jurisprudence of Charles and James Stuart put before us in that single satirical sentence. But powerful as Bunyan's whole picture of Judge Hategood's court is, it is a tame and a poor picture compared with what all the historians tell us of the injustice and cruelty of the court of Judge Jeffreys. Macaulay's portrait of the Lord Chief Justice of England for ferocity and fiendishness beats out of sight Bunyan's picture of that judge who keeps Satan's own seal in Bunyan's book. Jeffreys was bred for his future work at the bar of the Old Bailey, a bar already proverbial for the license of its tongue and for the coarseness of its cases. Jeffreys served his apprenticeship for the service that our two last stewards had in reserve for him so well that he soon became, so his beggared biographer describes him, the most consummate bully that ever disgraced an English bench. The boldest impudence when he was a young advocate and the most brutal ferocity when he was an old judge sat equally secure on the brazen forehead of George Jeffreys. The real and undoubted ability and scholarship of Jeffreys only made his wickedness the more awful and his whole career the greater curse both to those whose tool he was and to those whose blood he drank daily. Jeffreys drank brandy and sang lewd songs all night and he drank blood and cursed and swore on the bench all day. Just imagine the state of our English courts when a judge could thus assail a poor wretch of a woman after passing a cruel sentence upon her. Hangman shouted the ermined brute. Hangman, pay particular attention to this lady. Scourge her soundly, man. Scourge her till the blood runs. 
It is the Christmas season, a cold season for Madam to strip in. See therefore, man, that you warm her shoulders thoroughly. End of quote. And you all know who Richard Baxter was. You have all read his seraphic book, The Saint's Rest. Well, besides being the Richard Baxter so well known to our saintly fathers and mothers, he was also, and he was emphatically, the peacemaker of the Puritan party. Baxter's political principles were of the most temperate and conciliatory, and indeed almost royalist kind. He was a man of strong passions indeed, but all the strength and heat of his passions ran out into his hatred of sin and his love of holiness, and an unsparing and consuming care for the souls of his people. Very faithful himself stood before the bar of Judge Jeffreys in the person of Richard Baxter. It took all the barefaced falsehood and scandalous injustice of the Crown prosecutors to draw out the sham indictment that was read out in court against inoffensive Richard Baxter. But what was lacking in the charge of the Crown was soon made up by the abominable scrollty of the judge. You are a schismatical knave, roared out Jeffreys, as soon as Baxter was brought into court. You are an old hypocritical villain. And then, clasping his hands and turning up his eyes, he sang through his nose, O Lord, we are thy peculiar people. We are thy dear and only people. You old blockhead, he again roared out, I will have you whipped through the city at the tail of the cart. By the grace of God, I will look after you, Richard. And the tiger would have been as good as his word had not an overpowering sense of shame compelled the other judges to protest and get Baxter's inhuman sentence commuted to fine and imprisonment. And so on and so on. But it was Jeffrey's Western Circuit, as it was called, that filled up the cup of his infamy. An infamy, says the historians, that will last as long as the language and the history of England last. The only parallel to it is the infamy of a royal house and a royal court that could welcome home and promote to honor such a detestable miscreant as Jeffreys was. But the slaughter in Somerset was only over in order that a similar slaughter in London might begin. Let those who have a stomach for more blood and tears follow out the hell upon earth that James Stewart and George Jeffreys together let loose on the best life of England in their now fast-shortening day. Was Judge Jeffreys, some of you will ask me, born and bred in hell? Was the devil his father and original sin his mother? Or was he not the very devil himself come to earth for a season in English flesh? No, my brethren, not so. Judge Jeffreys was one of ourselves. Little George Jeffreys was born and brought up in a happy English home. He was baptized and confirmed in an English church. He took honors in an English university. He ate dinners, was called to the bar, conducted cases, and took silk in an English court of justice. And in the ripeness of his years and of his services, he wore the honorable ermine and sat upon the envied wool sack of an English sovereign. It would have been far less awful and far less alarming to think of had Judge Jeffreys been, as you supposed, a pure devil let loose on the Church of Christ and the awakening liberty of England. But some innocent soul will ask me next whether there has ever been any other monster on the face of the earth like Judge Jeffreys, and whether by any possibility there are any such monsters anywhere in our own day. 
Yes, truth compels me to reply. Yes, there are. Plenty. Too many. Only their environment nowadays, as our naturalists say, does not permit them to grow to such strengths and dimensions as those of James Stewart and George Jeffreys, his favorite judge. At the same time, be not deceived by your own deceitful heart, nor by any other deceiver's smooth speeches. Judge Jeffreys is in yourself, only circumstances have not yet let him fully show himself in you. Still, if you look close enough and deep enough into your own hearts, you will see the same wicked light glancing sometimes there that used so to terrify Judge Jeffreys' prisoners when they saw it in his wicked eyes. If you lay your ear close enough to your own heart, you will sometimes hear something of that same hiss with which that human serpent sentenced to torture and to death the men and the women who would not submit to his command. The same savage laughter also will sometimes all but escape your lips as you think of how your enemy has been made to suffer in body and in a state. Oh yes, the very same hell broth that ran for blood in Judge Jeffrey's heart is in all our hearts also. And those who have the least of its poison left in their hearts will be the foremost to confess its presence and to hate and condemn and bewail themselves on account of its terrible dregs. Hate good is an awful name for any man to bear. Those who really know what goodness is and then what hatred is, they will feel how awful a thing it is for any man to hate goodness. But there is something among us sinful men far more awful than even that, and that is to hate God. The carnal mind, writes the Apostle Paul to the Romans, and it is surely the most terrible sentence that often terrible enough apostle ever wrote, the carnal mind is enmity against God. And Dr. John Owen, annotating on that sentence, is equally terrible. The carnal mind, he says, has chosen a great enemy indeed. And having mentioned John Owen, will you let me once more beseech all students of divinity, that is, all students, amongst other things, of the desperate depravity of the human heart, to read John Owen's sixth volume, till they have it by heart, by a broken, believing heart. Owen, on indwelling sin, is one of the greatest works of the great Puritan period. It is a really great, and as we nowadays say, a truly scientific work to the bargain. But all that, by the way, yes, this carnal heart that is still left in every one of us has chosen a great enemy, and it would need both strong and faithful allies in order to fight him. The hatred that his son also met with when he was in this world is one of the most hateful pages of this hateful world's hateful history. He knew his own heart towards his enemies, and thus he was able to say to the searcher of hearts with his dying breath, They hated me without a cause. Truly our hatred is hottest when it is most unjust. Look to ourselves, wrote the Apostle John to the elect lady and her children. Yes, let us all look sharply and suspiciously to ourselves in this matter now in hand, and we shall not need John Owen nor anybody else to discover to us the hatred and the hatefulness of our own hearts. Look to yourselves, and the work of the law will soon be fulfilled in you. Homo homini lupus taught an old philosopher who had studied moral philosophy not in books so much as in his heart. Is no man naturally good? 
asked innocent Lady MacLeod of Dunvegan Castle at her guest, Dr. Samuel Johnson. No, madam, no more than a wolf. That is quite past all question with all those who either in natural morals or in revealed religion look to and know and characterize themselves. We have all an inborn propensity to dislike one another and a very small provocation will suddenly blow that banked up furnace into a flame. It is ever present with me, says self-examining Paul, and hence it so sudden and so destructive outbreaks. So the written or the printed name of our enemy, his image in our mind, his passing step, his figure out of a window, his wife, his child, his carriage, his cart in the street, anything, everything will stir up our heart at that man we do not like. And the whole of our so honest Bible, our present text, and the illustrations of our text in Judge Jeffreys and Judge Haygood's courts all go to show that the better a man is, the more sometimes will we hate him. Good men, better men than we are, men who in public life and in private life pursue great and good ends, of necessity cross and go counter to us in our pursuit of small, selfish, evil ends, and of necessity we hate them. For cross a selfish sinner sufficiently, and you will have a very devil, as many good men, if they knew it, have in us. Again, good men who come into contact with us cannot help seeing our bad lives, our tempers, our selfishness, our public and private vices. And we see that they see us, and we cannot love those whose averted eye so goes to our conscience. And not only in the hatred of good men, but if you know of God how to watch yourselves, you will find yourselves out every day also in the hatred of good movements, good causes, good institutions, and good works. There are doctors who would far rather hear of their rival's patient expiring in his hands than hear of their rival's success trumpeted through all the town. There are ministers also who would rather that the masses of the city and the country sank yet deeper into improvidence and drink and neglect of ordinances than that they were rescued by any other church than their own. They hate to hear of the successes of another church. There are party politicians who would rather that the ship of the state ran on the rocks both in her home and her foreign policy than that the opposite party should steer her amid a nation's cheers into harbor. And so of good news. I will stake the divine truth of this evening's scriptures and of their historical and imaginative illustrations on the feelings, if you know how to observe, detect, characterize, and confess them, the feelings, I say, that will rise in your heart tomorrow morning when you read what is good news to other men, even to good men, and to the families and family interests of good men. It does not matter one atom into what profession, office, occupation, interest you track the corrupt heart of man as sure as a substance casts a shadow so sure will you find your own selfish heart hating goodness when the goodness does not serve or flatter you now though they will never be many yet there must be some men among us one here and another there who have so looked at and found out themselves I can well believe that some men here came up to this house tonight trembling in their heart all the way they felt the very advertisement go through them like a knife. They felt that they were summoned up hither almost by name as to judgment. For they feel every day 
though they have never told their feelings to any, that they have this horrible heart deep-seated within them to love evil and to hate good. They gnash their teeth at themselves as they catch themselves rejoicing in iniquity. They feel their hearts expanding and they know that their faces shine when you tell them evil tidings. They sicken and lose heart and sit solitary when you carry to them a good report. They feel, as John Bunyan felt, that no one but the devil can equal them in pollution of heart. And their wonder sometimes is that the searcher of hearts does not drive them down where devils dwell and hate God and man and one another. They look around them when the penitential psalm is being sung and they smile bitterly to themselves. O people of God, they say, you do not know what you are saying. Leave that psalm to me. I can sing it. I can tell to God what he knows about sin and about sin in the heart. Stand away back from me, that man says, for I am a leper. The chief of sinners is beside you. A whited sepulcher stands open beside you. Stop now, O hating and hateful man, and let me speak for a single moment before we separate. Before you say any more about yourself, and before you leave the house of God, lift up your broken heart, and with all your might bless God that he has opened your eyes and taught you how to look at yourself and how to hate yourself. There are hundreds of honest Christian men and women in this house at this moment to whom God has not done as, in his free grace, he has done to you. For he has not only begun a good work in you, but he has begun that special and peculiar work which, when it goes on to perfection, makes a great and an eminent saint of God. To know your own heart as you evidently know it, and to hate it as you say you hate it, and to hunger after a clean heart as with every breath you hunger, all that, if you would only believe it, sets you, or will yet set you, high up among the people of God. Be comforted. It is your bounden duty to be comforted. God deserves it at your hands that you be more than comforted amid such unmistakable signs of his eminent grace to you. And be patient under your exceptional sanctification. Rome was not built in a day. You cannot reverse the awful law of your sanctification. You cannot be saved by Jesus Christ and by his Holy Spirit without seeing yourself. And you cannot see yourself without hating yourself. And you cannot begin to hate yourself without all your hatred henceforth turning against yourself. You are deep in the red-hot bosom of the refiner's fire, and when you are once sufficiently tried by the divine refiner of souls, he will in his own good time and way bring you out as gold. Be patient, therefore, till the coming of the Lord, and say continually amid all your increasing knowledge of yourself and amid all your increasing hatred of yourself, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Chapter 20, page 201 Faithful in Vanity Fair Be thou faithful. Revelation 2, verse 10 The breadth of John Bunyan's mind, the largeness of his heart, and the tolerance of his temper all come excellently out in his fine portrait of faithful. New beginners in personal religion, when they first take up the pilgrim's progress in earnest, always try to find out something in themselves that shall somewhat correspond to the recorded experience of Christian, the chief pilgrim. 
and they are afraid that all is not right with them unless they, like him, have had, to begin with, a heavy burden on their back. They look for something in their religious life that shall answer to the sloth of despond also, to the hill of difficulty, to the house beautiful, and especially and indispensably to the place somewhat ascending with a cross upon it and an open sepulchre beneath it. And because they cannot always find out all these things in themselves, in the exact order and in the full power in which they are told of Christian in Bunyan's book, they begin to have doubts about themselves as to whether they are true pilgrims at all. But here is Faithful, with whom Christian held such sweet and confidential discourse, and yet he had come through not a single one of all these things. The two pilgrims had come from the same city of destruction indeed, and they had met at the gate of vanity, and passed through Vanity Fair together. But till they embraced one another again in the celestial city, that was absolutely all the experience they had in common. Faithful had never had any such burden on his back as that was which had for so long crushed Christian to the earth. And the all but complete absence of such a burden may have helped to let Faithful get over the slough of despond dry-shod. He had the good lot to escape Sinai also in the hill of difficulty, and his passing by the house beautiful and not making the acquaintance of discretion and prudence and charity may have had something to do with the fact that one named Wanton had liked to have done him such a mischief. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.